My name is Will Fitzgerald and this is the Galway Film Podcast. Today on the show, I'm talking to producer and director Brendan Byrne. Brendan is the director of the critically acclaimed documentary Bobby Sands' 66 Days, which won the Best Irish Documentary Award at the 2016 Galway Film Pla. Brendan's latest documentary, One Million American Dreams, premiered at Galway this year. Brendan is also a prolific producer. His resume includes Northern Irish dramas Jump and Maze, and documentaries Elian, No Stone Unturned, and the Netflix space program expose Mercury 13. Brendan, thanks for taking the time uh, chatting to us. Great to be here. Uh, your new uh, documentary premiere at the FLA this year, One Million American Dreams. Uh, terrific piece of work. Really loved it. Tell us about the genesis of the project. I, I was very conscious coming off the back of 66 Days, Bobby Sands, that you know, I had made quite a lot of films which had dwelt on the Irish situation, particularly the northern conflict. And I felt that you know, I had I'd done enough in that arena. So I really felt that I needed to go off somewhere else and, and, and tell a different story. And uh, I had been going back and forth a lot to America. And uh, I had been looking for something deliberately outside of Ireland. And a colleague sent me a small story about this place. And uh, I realized very quickly it was, a, it was a, a thing that had been covered many times, but as a small story. And I realized, well, wait a minute, there's a million people have been buried here over 150 years. There's a much bigger story here. And in some ways as well, it all connected back to the fact that when I first arrived in New York as a 17-year-old uh, back in 1983, it was probably one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Uh, i never forget getting on uh, the, the bus from JFK into downtown Manhattan and you know the guy sitting beside me on the bus was a black T-shirt and a guitar case. I could have swore he was Bruce Springsteen. We <laughs> went past a sort of basketball area in Queens. It was like straight out of a movie. So it was a very, very uh, powerful experience. And I've been going back and forward in New York for 35 years. And then when I found this story, it felt to me that it was the way of telling uh, the change of this great city and this great country that I'd witnessed across those 35 years. I arrived as someone full of promise, thinking that this was the, the biggest and best place in the world. But I learned to discover that whilst it's still the biggest and greatest place in the world, uh, there's many secrets and there's much harshness. And there's a lot of sorrow that lies at the heart of all those glaring, twinkling skyscrapers, and I, I felt I wanted to tell that story. Yeah, perfectly. As I've gone through that journey just like two years ago, I moved over there, and then it was like, yeah, the same, the bus journey, um, going through Brooklyn into midtown Manhattan, and it's mad and overwhelming, and yeah. It's it is, cool. it is, it's unforgettable, and yeah. uh, you know, it's something you'll never forget, and I just, I, it never ceases to uh, get any more boring or anything, but now I just see, America in, in many different ways and obviously everybody's kind of looking at Trump's America and all the rest of it and we don't mention Trump or don't see a Trump building once in the entire movie but the more and more I work in New York and realize even amongst the liberal artistic elite there that you know there's a harshness there's a coarseness there's a there's a, a you know a real kind of survival of the fittest but I think in some ways it there it lacks a bit of compassion now and it's not a very warm and friendly place anymore. There, there's laughs, uh, but they're laughs at an expense. Uh, they're, they're professional laughs, and I, I just feel that there's something lost now, uh, and there's something of a bankruptcy about uh, America now, which in some ways the, the film is about loss, 
and it's about how these families experience loss in their personal lives. But for me, it's about uh, what how America has lost something as well in this kind of rush mm -hmm. for the American dream. And, and of course, our film is really about those lives who were crushed under the weight of that yeah. Uh, rush. Yeah, it's literally lost people, which is you know amazing. Um, like you said, you don't mention Trump or go out of the way to point out any like obvious allegories, but it's there <laughs> if you're looking for it. Like it's. I know. hope so. I hope yeah. so. You know, and I mean, there's something of uh, I was, I was encouraged by others at one point to have a story uh, to see if there was, should be an Irish story in it, and you know we we did find a story, but it felt like another story that we'd already done in the film. So I think the spinal story, of the the Cuban woman. Uh, who, whose father had to leave Cuba 35 years ago to, 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 to make a better life for them. They didn't realise when he left that they would never see him again. And yet he sent money home every month for all of those 30 years until he himself became ill. So really to have the, <clears throat> the benefit of sharing some time with them and, and following them on their journey from Havana to New York so that she could stand on the ground where her father's remains lay and for her to be able to reclaim those remains and have them cremated and to bring them back and share with the rest of her family and spread his ashes in the Malacon is in some ways a release for all of our characters in the film, seen primarily, obviously, through her specific narrative journey. But it's, it's, it's something of a release in an otherwise kind of relentlessly, I suppose, dark film. But yeah. for me, I suppose it's, it's, well, it's a film about a million lost souls and particularly through the, the stories of these four families, it's really a film more about life than it is about death because these people who are fighting to survive and to fighting to reclaim the narratives of their lost loved ones is, is really a kind of guiding strength for all of us who hopefully don't have <clears throat> such hardships put in our way and can gain some kind of inspiration and strength for these people and seeing how they've overcome some of the most difficult things one could imagine. Yeah. And is there, was there like a bit of a relief in that when you're, you know, you talked about how um, should we put an Irish story in this and actually realizing like, no, like, is there something of a relief when you kind of go, actually, yeah, it's actually not on me to always be telling an Irish story or, you know. Very much so, very much so. And I suppose in a way as well, I was thinking that, you know, it's even better because in, in immigration, as I suppose we, we, in the Cuban story, I mean, all our stories are in there. All our Irish stories are there. We, we didn't have to, to paint it, you know, with the green, white and orange flag. And this way we've painted it in a, in a Cuban flag. But the immigration story to America is, is truly universal. So I think we feel that. Uh, I suppose as well, the film, again, indirectly is looking at issues such as race through our other key contributor, uh, Herbert Sweat, an American uh, Vietnam veteran. He was fantastic. Yeah. He, I love him. And, uh, and he just sort of comes to life and, and, and obviously talks to what is an enduring uh, challenge in American <clears throat> life. I'm, I've just finished reading a kind of big, witty American book called Common Ground, uh, which was essentially a, a book set in Boston uh, about the busing crisis. But it really, it takes about 200 pages to get there. <clears throat> and, and it charts the stories of three families uh, through American history and how they all come to live in Boston at a particular time. But reading that book and seeing how one of the families is, is Irish and their journey to America, and then one of them is a, is a, is a, is a black family that's travelled out of slavery, and to see how America's been fighting with this kind of trying to come to terms with, with racial, uh, or find racial harmony uh, you know, from slavery, and, and, and to see them still fighting it today. So Herbert Sweat 
was really uh, important in that respect. And of course, there's a Puerto Rican woman in it too. Mm-hmm. And there, in many ways, are the, the most uh, saddest immigrant story because the Puerto Ricans are, are genuine American citizens. Yeah. They have they American... They always feel at a distance. They always yeah. feel at a distance. And so they are even more lost. So even as American citizens living in the, in the sticks in New York, <clears throat> they feel further away than anyone yeah. and w- without an identity identity more than than others so i think we were very lucky or well well we we worked hard to find them but to find the threads and four stories that all spoke to a different part of what is you know kind of <clears throat> at the contemporary pulse of of modern america yeah. and and it was important as well in that respect to have a a kind of i don't know how best to describe it you know a kind of white working relatively middle class family as well within that mix yeah as well uh to to show that you know obviously it's not just you know the african-american or the immigrant or the puerto rican story that falls on hard times obviously white uh picket fence middle class america <clears throat> is is just as capable of falling between the cracks uh so i think within that melting pot we're presenting our own kind of unique mosaic of of new york <clears throat> and the underside of New York, and hopefully in which I'm very excited to see tomorrow, or very curious to see tomorrow, is to what extent it's a New York story, but also a, a kind of deeper story about America. And that I don't know, and that's, it's got a face and audience. That's the fun, yeah, that's the fun it's, of it. Or, or, the, or the, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe fun is not the word. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, let's go back actually to, you know, talking about being like that 17 year old who's getting off a bus and like full promise and all that. Like, it's, like maybe like, Talk about your journey toward like becoming a filmmaker. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you've worked kind of all over and for so many different people, like Channel Four. Uh, Channel Four worked RTE, with John T. Davis everyone. for many years. And oh wow! Did his early yeah. films. Uh, I was worked on Dust on the Bible and uh, Power on the Blood as a young kind of production assistant, and then produced a couple of his films, The Uncle Jack. And I loved that film. Worked on Hobo, rode the freight trains across America with uh, John when I was uh, just three years started in the business, and that gave me a real kind of insight into filmmaking. And, and uh, I love John, he's been a friend for a long time. So that was great. And then I, after four years of working for DBA, which was then the only kind of independent film company in the North of Ireland, uh, David Barker Associates, uh, I got my chance to make a film. It was on my doorstep. Uh, I'd played for a Gaelic football team uh, all my life. and. <clears throat> As a 25-year-old, I was looking at a newspaper story one day and I realised how many people from our own Gaelic football team had been killed as a result of the Troubles. Uh, some had taken life and others had their life taken. And I realised, my God, sure, the best story of all are, is, is one that I've been part of. Yeah. So it was actually Rod Stoneman, who was at Channel 4 at the time oh, and no then way. came okay. to the Irish Film Board and is now at uh, the university here. He used to lecture me in Houston, yeah. Well, there you go. Well, you can ask Rod Stoneman about it. It's a film called The Kickhams, which was my very first film. Uh, and it was a story about this Gaelic football team. And, and I suppose it was done in 1992, which was just two years before the first IRA ceasefire and six years before the Good Friday Agreement. So then the, 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 a film about a Gaelic football team was genuinely a kind of uh, a, a film about second-class citizenship in then Northern Ireland. Uh, and again, it wasn't very overt. I mean, obviously it was, a, it was, it was describing second class citizenship through sort of cultural means, but mm-hmm. in that respect it was even more powerful because it wasn't a polemic in any shape or form. And uh, 
So that was my my first start, and I was very lucky. Actually, it was a co-production with Rossellini and Associates of, of Rome. So uh-huh. I got to work with uh, uh, Roberto Rossellini's son. He was the producer of that film, and it was edited on Super 16 in a old-style cutting room in, in Rome. Wow. So that was a great education because it was my first film. I kind of didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but I knew the story I was telling, yeah. and I had very experienced people around me. So that sort of got me started, and then I've always really produced and directed my own films since, and I've flirted with drama. I've made a couple of movies. I produced Jump for Kieran J. Walsh. I obviously produced uh, Maze last year as well, which played here on Saturday night last year with Jane Doolan and yeah. Stephen Burke. But I suppose I've, documentaries are my first love, and that's where I grew up. And uh, I think, obviously, 66 Days, a couple of years ago here, I, I'd spent a long time making high-end TV documentaries. And then when I was looking back at that time, about five years ago, going, I've made a lot of great TV documentaries. I wish I'd spent the last 10 years looking a bit further afield and being a bit more ambitious. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, well, look, I'll start now. Yeah. Uh, it's never too late. Uh, Bobby so Sands did feel like a, you know, a breakthrough and it's, or like a, you know, like a watershed. I think it film, definitely was. You know? I, I was, I was, uh, I remember it well. I was, uh, my wife and her brothers and sisters and her father that just recently lost their mother and had gone to New York. Uh, and I was left holding the baby, let's just say, a big baby she was too, and a few others. So I was kind of wandering around the house and was going, uh, nobody's done a film about Bobby Sands. Now, a new Hunger film, I'd loved Hunger. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> but I thought, well, that was a very kind of cool film. It was very artistic, but I was very keen to kind of put the context around that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt that that film wasn't interested in that. It was interested in other things and uh, was all the stronger for it. But I thought, well, my God, he, this is the iconic figure. Uh, let's make a film about him. So immediately I started thinking, oh my God, somebody else must have thought about this. But no, so I started that. And uh, you know, we immediately knew from the beginning where we we're going to make that a feature doc. And I knew it had the legs to be a feature doc, it was really just how to structure it. And then obviously, you know, it, it was kind of obvious in one way that, you know, if we structured it around the 66 days format, uh, hit that word, but that would give us a, an absolutely perfect mechanism to be able to go back into history and yeah. come back into the contemporary timeline and go out and explore <clears throat> other cultural references that were important. Uh, so yes, it, it did very well. It was well received all around the world yeah. uh, and it was fantastic and again it was like it was me really re-exploring something that had happened to me was a 17 year old as a 15 year old schoolboy going to school and every day on the way home used to see the rat and outside the bus because I had a pretty long journey from West Belfast back to North Belfast and I remember those events vividly but as a 15 year old I couldn't fully process them. Mm. So 66 days was about going back into re-examining that period, knowing that that was kind of essentially the most important period in, in, in Irish history in the second part of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, so was to tell that story of not just Bobby Sands, but the times that he lived in and died in uh, as a way of telling a bigger story about the, the Irish conflict. So yeah. that's been... Uh, a great experience yeah and so, so you followed that up with uh, another doc like what do you think of 
you think the documentary marketplace is a healthy place to be right now, or is, or is it more of a these are passion projects? No, I think it's good. I mean, the as I said, I wanted to go and start doing different stories. I mean, although with the exception, I have gone back and told one more story in in the short film that I'm showing at Galway this year. Hear my voice, based on the Colin Davidson exhibition of Paint and Silent Testimony. But in general, I think the documentary world is very strong. But I think you have to. Unfortunately, most of the money now is in America. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'd be trying to encourage the more ambitious and the more talented of of the Irish filmmaking community to to start getting on a plane and 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 trying to knock those doors to to get the bigger budgets to tell the bigger stories. I yeah. think we're locked into a bit of a scene here whereby. You know, if you can cobble some money from the film board and a bit of Section 481, you can make a film for €250,000. Yeah. But that can only get you so far. You know, for bigger, ambitious works, I'm hopefully, my next film is hopefully going to be <clears throat> about Joni Mitchell. I've been oh, wow. to LA to meet Joni Mitchell, who's now uh, not a, she's, she's a bit of a shadow of her former self and isn't the well woman that she once was. But nonetheless, uh, she's still alive and kicking and still has a, a quiet power. Uh, you know, we couldn't make that film for €250,000. I've been, unfortunately, there's a great film that's not shown here this year because, I don't know, but The Lonely Battle <laughs> of Thomas Reid. I think it's too close to the release. Yeah, yeah, we tried. I, <laughs> they, I, and I didn't want to tell them. I should. I, I was going to say, look, guys, you should show it in Galway. Yeah. Uh, but I was only getting to know them. <clears throat> Brilliant film. Totally love those guys. I mean, they've got a real future ahead of them. Uh, we're hopefully going to be doing their next film. And we're trying to introduce them to kind of sort of big American financiers so that their next creative vision can be supported by the level of budget that is needed mm-hmm. to catapult those guys onto the next stage. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the market is, is strong. There's never been a, a stronger appetite for quality documentaries. <clears throat> the curators of those documentaries are, are increasingly beginning to finesse and focus uh, what those stories are they're looking for. Uh, there's only a small number of Irish stories that can genuinely leapfrog to become international stories. Yeah. We're awash with great stories. We're great storytellers ourselves, but we can't just tell stories about ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so the challenge is to find those stories that, that resonate uh, internationally and abroad. And also the challenge is for Irish filmmakers to find other narratives beyond their shores. Yeah. Uh, to demonstrate their filmmaking chops <clears throat> internationally, yeah. uh, so that's. It sounds as well kind of like you're advocating for having like to be always wearing your producer's hat like at the same time. Or do you think that's an inherent part of documentary filmmaking? Like not just looking for your own projects, but always looking for new collaborators and. It, probably it's probably because I, my own career has I have always ended up producing my own films that have directed. I've also had other producers working on them, but I think it's a small enough industry. And there's there's not enough money in it that, you know, I find the most creative way of being a director is also partly being your own producer. Mm. And I do produce uh, other people's films. Uh, so that's only my experience. And, and, and I, I do think it is useful. And I suppose I'm, uh, I spend 40% of my time as a producer and 60% of my time directing my own films okay. so i it, it's a it's a balance that works for me mm-hmm. and i think that some director uh, facing director only documentarians probably uh may suffer because they don't have uh producers 
mm-hmm. working with them regularly, who have worked internationally, who have made those contacts that can open those doors for them uh, to be able to step up their career, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, let's talk more actually about uh, Hear My Voice, uh, since you mentioned it. It's really, really beautiful film. And I have to say, uh, when we sat down to watch it in Belfast, I was a bit, I, like I had some trepidation in terms of, uh, you know, art documentaries can be a hard one to, you know, get right. Because essentially you're, you're trying to appreciate one medium through another and it's like you're, you're throwing up barriers. But those paintings, Colin Davidson's paintings on film, uh, looked amazing. Like the the eyes that he, you know, of of the victims that he portrayed, like shone through the paintings and through the lens of your camera, and really, like it, the whole thing, really, really uh, worked. Were you nervous at all about like shooting artwork? Or uh, okay, I was and I wasn't. I mean, I loved. I, I kind of when I went to see the exhibition first off, I was very, I was disappointed because I I, I loved the exhibition, but I thought I'd missed an opportunity. Uh, because if you think about uh, a, a film about a, a group of artworks, the, the traditional thing is you watch the guy painting them, mm. and you, 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 the film finishes on the night of the exhibition. So at one point, I thought I sort of missed an opportunity because I loved the paintings, and then they, they stayed with me for about a year. And I remember having a conversation with someone else, and I said, "I love these paintings. There's something that should be done about them." So I said to myself, well, I'll go and meet Colin anyway and I'll talk to him about them. So I sat down with him. He's obviously very uh, protective of his work and knew himself that as soon as someone would use another art form to explore what he had already explored, he was beginning to share his baby. Mm. But when we got talking and quickly realised that, you know, it was obviously the paintings. It was kind of obvious it was the paintings, not the process of painting them in the first place that were important and that the paintings still existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I thought, well, of course, let's let's make a film. Now, you know, obviously we had to get them out of storage. And then we also realised that the limitation of making films about paintings is that often they're only hung in traditional galleries mm-hmm. and they're hung in on a wall beside each other and a camera can't go through that wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just has to stand in front of them and you can see the dead hand of the art show or, or with no disrespect to any of these programmes, you know, The View or... Any of those arts programs that you see that are following uh, a story of a group of paintings, they're so predictable. The artist walks up and down. You see a few shots of him looking at his artworks and you go, right, okay, how many times have I seen this? (laughs) And then he starts talking about the process of the painting. And whilst I myself like those kinds of films, they're so, so predictable. So I kind of knew we'd have to rip all that up and start again. I also knew but that it'd have to be a short film that it couldn't be a 90-minute film. It was not a feature doc because that visual, not conceit, but that visual power would not sustain through 90 minutes. So I think the brave decision was to make it a short film, but then, of course, there was challenges because you couldn't make it on a shoestring. So mm-hmm. we needed to persuade people to give us a proper budget so that we could really, really, really make something cinematic with these paintings. So the final piece of the jigsaw was that Colin and I both knew of this building, which was a disused ironworks in in Belfast city centre. I knew of it because I'd filmed something quite simple in there before. He knew of it because he was a previous chair of the Royal Ulster Academy, which had bought the building. And we thought, well, look, let's hang the paintings in this old building because there's a great depth of field. The camera could be behind the paintings. And in many ways, 
hung in this building, the paintings themselves would, would be like literally the lost ghosts of the lost loved ones of the people featured in the paintings. Mm-hmm. So they would almost have a ghost-like quality that would kind of resonate with, with, with the, the dead people who, whose loss they were suffering. And in many ways, actually, we'd filmed other material with each of the contributors. I'd also decided I was only doing audio interviews. I wasn't going to have in-vision interviews with these people because I didn't want the image of them with their painting competing in any way. And yeah. it was really all focused about the paintings. And I remember my cinematographer, Richard Kendrick, who's a great guy, when we were filming some of the more bitty stuff of the individuals, as you're putting the film together, he was kind of saying, look, I'm, listen, this stuff's not... It's okay, but it's, it's TV. And I says, I know, Richard, but <clears throat> it'll probably turn out that we'll maybe just use the exhibition when we hang it. Mm-hmm. So that came to pass. So all our efforts went on hanging this exhibition in this disused warehouse with all the attendant issues there were. Uh, <clears throat> we were going to black it out. We decided not to. Anyway, as soon as the painting started to go up in there, we realized, wow, this is going to be something else. And it also gave us that great flexibility where we could bring cranes in and we own this space in a way that you can't do if you were bringing equipment into the National Gallery. So we focused everything around a three-day shoot in this building, uh, uh, perfectly choreographed and designed in a way that would would film everything from every corner. Uh, And then, really, once we had all that beautiful visual sort of tapestry, it was about how to uh, sort of complement that. So I had... I'd, I'd loved the, the music of Brand Byrne. Mm-hmm. He had composed a piece of music which was for people who were lost in the industry. Uh, you know that sequence in the, the Oscars or the IFTAs were for people who had lost their lives during the yeah. previous year. Yeah. He had written a piece of music called Tales from the Walled City uh, in actually memory of his own father's death. But it had been used in, I think, tw- 2013 at the IFTAs. And Nicola Benedetti, the brilliant Glaswegian uh, violinist, had, had played this beautiful piece of music. And I had really I'd re- remembered it. Uh, so I got Brian to do the music, and he had obviously just done Black 47. And it was at Galway this time last year that I first Skyped him from the Radisson, because oh, uh, he lives in L.A. And, and he knew of Cullen's work. Because as a short film as well, I wanted the film to be intense yeah. and visceral. Uh, that it felt like, you know, to give the audience a kind of sense of what it might be like to feel like one of the people who was in the paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, that's something that hopefully most of the audience watching the film has not had to endure themselves. I mean, we've all lost our mothers or fathers or depending on what age we are. Some people have maybe been more unfortunate to lost loved ones in other circumstances. But these people haven't lost someone prematurely who, who they loved in, 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 in violent circumstances and never had any kind of closure on that loss is a very intense, intense, uh, hollow feeling that they never really get over. So the, 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 the combination of really heightened cinematography, the beautiful paintings with the haunting eyes, the kind of very kind of powerful score mm-hmm. all joined together to try and kind of to, to, to make that intense and visceral yeah. so that you can't look away. You have to kind of confront what it is that uh, the film's trying to explore. Yeah, well, it really worked. Congrats. It's, I mean, yeah, like you said, kind of bit by bit deconstruction of how those things are made and done, and it, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. So just uh, before we uh, kind of <coughs> wrap it up, talking about you, you already touched on the Joni Mitchell project. Uh, what other future projects are in the pipeline? 
Well, we were, do, we're um, um, as a producer, I've, I've produced two films in South America, which are coming out soon. One's in Honduras and, and one's in Colombia. Wow. Uh, one's called Behind the Blood. It's a portrait of the most violent uh, city in the world, a place called San Pedro Sula. That's by a young uh, Dutch director called Loretta van der Horst. And she was born in Honduras and moved to the Netherlands when she was four. So hopefully that will premiere at IDFA. Here, and we've just uh, backed a young Irish director who's, who's making a film in Colombia about the biggest kind of atrocity that happened in Colombia uh, as a way of trying to kind of tell uh, the history of the Colombian peace process and the Colombian conflict through the, the story of this one massacre and how this person's family uh, he lost 30 family members. And this person then subsequently went on to be one of the people who, who, who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, alongside the Colombian president. So we've, we've produced those two films. We've just had a film that's been on Netflix that I produced as well called Mercury 13, uh, which is our yeah, first film for, things about that. Yeah. for Netflix. So that's been good. And as I say, I'm concentrating on the, the uh, Joni Mitchell film and uh, maybe making a film uh, about Michael Flatley as well. Uh, okay. For 25 years after Riverdance. And listen, before we go, uh, so that's, you're currently working on those. And then what are you... like? When yourself, when you're not like producing, directing, uh, if you're sitting down at night to watch like Netflix or whatever, like what do you what like you sit down and watch documentaries? Do you watch trash television to take your mind? Like what's your? Uh, to be honest, I watch two things. I probably uh, obviously love watching movies, uh, but I do watch documentaries. I do try and keep up in touch with what's kind of zeitgeisty at the minute. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to watch this thing on Netflix called Wild Wild. Country, oh, yeah, well, country. Ab about yeah. this massive uh, uh, cult, which is it's good, it's interesting. I'd never ever heard of this as mad. I find the storytelling a bit slow. I think this kind of long form storytelling only works for well, listen, if they did it in four hours, it would have been a punchier watch. They've done it in six. I don't think making a murderer suffered from that, although that got a bit voyeuristic for me. So, I like to watch what's uh in vogue in our world uh, I, I, and then I'm a bit of a bore I, I'm a kind of I'm into sort of news I love watching Newsnight uh, prime time I'm a bit of a current affairs buff uh, that's the kind of stuff uh, that I kind of watch but I, I, I'm glad I don't have to make <laughs> uh, and then you know when I go to the movies I, I tend to watch I suppose the thing about me is I love fun, I love crack, but I'm drawn to more sort of somber, uh, uh, we, we call ourselves jokingly in the office that we are the masters of misery. You know, <laughs> we, we, we tend to tackle difficult, hard, evocative, uh, elegiac, important, heartwarming stories. Uh, I want to move people. I want to mm -hmm. be moved uh, when I'm watching a piece of art. That's why I do what I do. Uh, I love comedy. Uh, but I'm never going to make it. Uh, so essentially, um, I, I, I want to move people and be moved. And that's uh, what my favorite things to do as both a maker and a, a partaker and an and audience member. Brilliant. Right. Well, I think we'll, it's a perfect place to leave it there. Thanks very much, Brendan Byrne. Thank you, Will. Cheers. Cheers. Folks, that's our show for today. In the time since we recorded this interview, the homes and offices of two of the producers of the documentary, No Stone Unturned, were raided by Northern Irish police officers. The raids were widely condemned by journalists and other documentarians, including the film's director Alex Gibney, as an attack on the freedom of the press 
and is further evidence of collusion by the British government in the Lachlan Island massacre, as described in the film. I'll include a link in the show notes to a news item about the arrests, and I also highly recommend checking out the documentary No Stone Unturned. You can find other films of Brendan's on Netflix, including Maze, Bobby Sands' 66 Days, and Mercury 13. And keep an eye out for One Million American Dreams and Hear My Voice, which have only just started their global festival run. If you have any short follow-up questions for Brendan, he is on Twitter at Brendan J. Byrne. You can find our show at Galway Film. The Galway Film Podcast is produced by Grease On Demand Skillnet Training. If you enjoy the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Consider also subscribing so as not to miss future episodes. I'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, I'm Will Fitzgerald. Slongafol. So